0: Hi, I'm Raghu. Welcome to the Bystander Podcast. Today we have with us Sri Sridhar Vembu, CEO of ZO Corporation, a successful entrepreneur and a very inspiring leader who is taking this call from Tenkasi in Tamil Nadu in rural India. And I'm uh, recording this from London, from my home. Considering the challenging time we are in, I invited Sridhar to share his experience of navigating the change, and uh, as well as share about his own personal transformation, especially during his early days. Um, so Sridhar, welcome, and thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks, oh, for, thanks having
0: for having me. Uh, this uh, whole conversation started uh, with your tweet uh, where you mentioned about uh, after your PhD, you got that intuition that. Uh, my field has become a bit stale and I moved away and all that. You also shared that it was emotionally hard. So I want mm-hmm. to explore that dimension in this uh, uh, podcast. But before that, can you a little bit share about your, uh, your as a childhood, like uh, what kind of student you were and how was your schooling? And how did you get, what was your intention of uh, getting into IIT and then uh, into Princeton?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a, fairly modest Indian middle-class family. Uh, we were not poor, but we were far from far from well-to-do. I mean in a sense, uh, like typical middle-class families in the 70s and 80s in India, the bicycle is your transport. And that's a luxury, that feels like a luxury. The bicycle is a luxury, right? Yeah. So that is the typical thing. And I grew up in Chennai, but of the close, because both my parents came from villages down south in Tamil Nadu, in Tanjawa district specifically. So I ended up going to our village very often. And my both my parents, particularly my father, was always thought of that as home. Chennai was sort of a place we lived in. But our home is our village. That is how that attitude somehow we passed on to the children, actually. I don't know why we we were even though I was in Chennai, but I wasn't in Chennai in a way mentally <laughs> we, were, we were kind of growing up in a as a as a as a, uh, with a rural background. I went to fairly humble Tamil medium schools in Chennai, so in fact I would beg my mother every year why don't I just go to the same kind of school in the village why go to you know, why be in the school in Chennai and I love the village i go back. She never allowed that right she thought that somehow being in Chennai is important to her or that's how the kids will do better so you never fight mothers right yes, that's <laughs> so that's why i went to school in chennai but every holiday i would be in the village back in the village so that is how the childhood was uh, by conventional standard the school is it's a government-aided school as i say meaning in Tamil Nadu, we had this uh, scheme where the government will pay the teacher salaries but everything else is private so the under school is required not to charge fees.
0: Yeah.
1: So private uh, parties can run a school, but the government will pick up the teacher's mm-hmm. salaries, but but the school has to be free. So it's a kind of philanthropic effort. Yeah. And uh, our uh, chief minister, Carmen, created the scheme back in 1950s. And uh, that proved to be actually a really good scheme because a lot of people jumped into education, provided free schooling, uh, with their own resources for the facilities, all that.
0: Right. So
1: that was the kind of school I attended. It was free, and uh, I was see in these kinds of schools you don't have any homework. The the teachers tend to be reasonably good, but there was no there's too many students to assign homework, check in on you, all that. Mm-hmm. So they'll teach and then they leave you alone. Actually, unlike most of my classmates, I also when I was playful. And, but I had good knack for say, mathematics, all that. So I would do well in the exam. In the final exam. And they were easy. I found it to be easy. So in that sense, I was considered a good student. But I wasn't studious in childhood, like uh, many of the yeah,
0: kids tend to be. Top school uh, like class toppers.
1: Yeah, and well, all. I was from, uh, but that was because I found it easy, not because I was actually working for it as much. In fact, I was studious, but in a different way. I was constantly reading a lot about uh, politics. And uh, I mean, I, I knew extremely well about, say, Tamil Nadu politics, as an example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Politics was an
0: childhood.
1: Like a passion. I was probably even as early as nine or ten years old, yeah. I developed an interest in politics, of all things. And uh, the reason is, actually, I was reading the Tuklak magazine in Tamil by Chohar Ramaswamy, who was highly persuasive. And all is famous all throughout India, but is really is even more famous in Tamil, right? And then later on, once I started to learn to read the English newspaper, in fact, I learned English by reading the English newspaper. And uh, Arun Shori was my favourite okay. Indian Express. My father yeah. was very popular to Indian Express, primarily because Arun Shori was writing, uh, editing it, and you cannot miss his uh, editorials, right? He was hard editing punchy, all of that. Mm-hmm. So between my, in a sense, a parallel education, I provided myself through Tuklak and Indian Express. And while the school was going on, and that was easy, and that wasn't uh, just exams you have to take once in a while. That was, that was what schooling was. Otherwise, it is cricket, games, and all of that. That is all the childhood was. There wasn't a lot of pressure.
0: You are more like a, an, an introvert or an extrovert, like you have too many I mean, friends.
1: Uh, I, I I was kind of a nerdy person in a sense, even in childhood, I'd probably end up talking to kids older than me because they'd be the ones interesting we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Like we'll discuss uh, what is the philosophy behind this, what is communism, what is capitalism, all of that. That's not something that you can talk to you in a, a 13-year-old.
0: Right. Uh, so...
1: I actually had a lot of friends who were 20, 22-year-olds in my village who had gone through some college, all that. So they would be the ones I'll be talking about those types of topics. And so it, uh, it's kind of, I know it is that mixed age group. In fact, I've come to believe that that's very important because you really, this whole same age uh, socialization is not all that good for everyone. I and uh, different people are mature at different ages. And so the fact that I could be talking about, say, Communism or capitalism with somebody who is 10 years older than me was really educational okay. at the age of, say, 13 or 14. Okay. So I was doing that. And uh, so you can't say I'm an introvert, but I would appear introverted to some kids. Like, I'm not interested in discussing the latest movie as an example. In that sense, I was an introvert. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good, sir. And uh, what you were clear that you go to IIT from the beginning or it was just a natural. No, no.
1: I didn't even know IIT existed. In my kind of school and social network, nobody knew of a thing called IIT. Even though IIT was in Chennai, uh, we were in a different uh, social class altogether, right? Absolutely no one from my school had ever gone to IIT. Okay. So, and uh, in fact, uh, in my 11th standard, uh, none of the teachers had heard about IIT. Believe it or not. None of the teachers had heard about it. So, even in Chennai, there was true even in Chennai. So, the way I had it happened was purely accidental. Uh, in 10th standard, in our state public exam, I got a rank. I actually got the fourth rank in the state.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, To be honest, I was actually disappointed that I only got the fourth rank at that time. I actually thought that I should be getting the first rank, right? I as a kid, okay. so I was disappointed with myself. But honestly, I didn't put enough work into it also. So I I, I I would say that that particular year actually I spent more time analyzing the merits of communism versus capitalism than actually studying for school exams. so fourth rank was you know this is pretty good for that effort honestly, but i still I still uh, found a way to be disappointed as a kid, and because of that, our school uh, the school I was in became kind of popular locally. So suddenly an influx of uh, more, uh, you know, some of the English medium schools or kids all that came in because the school got a rank and uh, and some of them enrolled in IAT coaching class. non oh. standard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a couple of them taunted. They said, you know, oh, you could have actually, you know the way boys taunt, right? They'll yeah. say, oh, you might actually get a state rank in 10th standard, but that's no big deal. You, if you're really taunted. smart, you have to prove that you're getting at IIT. Right. I the mean, for a fifteen-year-old boy, you know what those words are? Those are those are like challenging words, right? right. So I said, "Okay, I'll show you." <laughs> That's why I enrolled in the class. Okay, uh, and I also enrolled in the class. That was in 11th standard, purely because at that age, a few boys taunted me that you cannot get into IT. They, they, like
0: they a challenge
1: me. Mm-hmm. So that was why I ended up yeah, because of challenge and, and not know uh, it's, in hindsight, it looks like a stupid or silly reason to do it, but that is that was the reason, actual
0: reason. I think sometimes I feel uh, that's a good motivation and that is the that,
1: motivation. That was the, the, when, they, when they enrolled in that coaching class, for the first time I heard about IIT, actually. <laughs> so that was, that was my introduction to IIT. So.
0: But you enjoyed IIT. How was your uh, um, stay in IIT? Like, did you learn too much or like, I think you, you, no, you, see
1: in, in hindsight, I mean, I am a, so I go from this type of school. I'm the only student who ever got into IIT until that point. Actually, in my year, there was one other, uh, guy. We, uh, one of the guys who showed up in our school that year also got in, but, but, uh, we were the only two in the entire history of the school. And um, I go there, and and you first thing you're shocked by the social class difference, right? When I come from a much more uh, modest middle class family than most of my classmates, and I also don't speak English. Well, I am used to speaking Tamil in school and all that, and these kids speak English effortlessly. That was obvious. So there was all those adjustments, uh, initial adjustments you have to make. And over time, over time I, I, of course I made good friends, all that, the hostel life was good, and that part was enjoyable. But I also found myself asking, even at 18 and 19, I know I'm wasting time. I know I'm wasting a lot of time. All of us are, the students are. And, but what else should we be doing? I mean, we are in the best institute, engineering uh, institution in India. I feel like I'm wasting time, but what else should I be doing? And why does it feel like wasting time? And now with the benefit of hindsight, I can answer that question. I, I distinctly remember, you know, my 19-year-old self thinking these thoughts in the hostel, sitting in the hostel somewhere. And uh, I would have a class like in uh, electrical machines, for example, motors, all right. uh, DC motors, AC motors, all of those very essential technology, right? Then you would have a class in television engineering or some such thing. And it's, I'm thoroughly unmotivated. I'm actually not interested, okay? I have no idea why I should be studying it. And also, what television engineering really means, or electrical motor really means, is that you have a lot of mathematical models of those things. right and you write exams do calculations on those mathematical models in fact you actually don't build a motor you you probably go to the lab occasionally there is a lab attached to it but those are very scripted things and you know that that's not the serious part the serious part is the mathematical models and the formulas and and the exams you write on those okay Okay. and your entire life you're prepared for these exams. A lot of IIT students are good at this and I was good at this. So, you could just do this last minute cram session for a couple of hours, three hours and you can do well, reasonably well in the exam. So, you are supposed to master electrical motors, okay? This this whole thing, I knew I am gaming the system, okay? I am gaming the system and so were so many of my classmates, but I was thoroughly dissatisfied with gaming the system this way but I also didn't know what else am I supposed to be doing. Remember, I'm 19 year old. I don't have any theory of education yet, so I don't know what I'm doing. What why I'm doing this? But I'm doing it. I'm doing it well. If you look at my grade point average, it was good enough that Princeton admitted me. Right. But so I would rate the experience as dissatisfactory from a more fundamental sense.
0: What may be the uh, source of that dissatisfaction?
1: It's not even that. I wouldn't say that I was. It was a. Kind of, it felt purposeless, void. That is the way I put it. The whole thing didn't, I didn't have to have any purpose. Okay. I don't know how much to blame my for it, but I definitely didn't feel purposeful sitting there. And there was no why. Why should we be doing electrical motors now? It's a sort of a meta question, right? Why?
0: Yeah.
1: And I don't think that had a satisfactory answer. Okay. And, uh, I, in benefit of hindsight, I will give all the answers, but at that time, I, I know that it didn't feel purposeful. And it looked like, you know, this, you are you are learning electrical motors, but you are really learning some mathematical models of electrical motors. You are taking the tests on those models, and you are passing, or you are doing reasonably well in those tests, but that didn't feel real anyway.
0: So When you thought of going to Princeton, did you think some of those will get addressed or answered there, or? What was well,
1: actually, I in fact interestingly at that point my objective became the mathematics itself see if you are going to build mathematical models, I realized you just want to be a mathematician and prove theorems why why even pretend right right so I decided to double down on the mathematical part which is which is something I'm good at I enjoyed it right and uh, it's not it's in fact one of the reasons you could do the test well is because the mathematics part itself is easy. Okay. okay. So, so I decided to go focus on a very heavily mathematical subfield of it, the theory of uh, the mathematical theory of communication as they call it. Right. Again, communication systems like the one we are talking about talking through right now, itself has mathematical models and prove theorems about those models. That was my field of study in Princeton. It's called information theory, but it's really the mathematical theory of communications, communication networks. So, that was my focus in Princeton, and I got a PhD in that subject. This was completely mathematical. I mean, my thesis would have a lot of uh, Greek symbols, theorems, proofs, delta, epsilon, all of that. And at the end of it, I was even more thoroughly disillusioned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: interesting. This, it was like a repeating a drug that you maybe have some resistance in the beginning and then repeating it again for yeah. four or five more years. I, I would have been, I would have, I was considered good at it. Remember, Princeton gave me a PhD.
0: Yep,
1: that, that Actually, it, they were at it. it. But I was thoroughly dissatisfied with myself for doing it.
0: For Princeton, how long it took you? Like to uh, what? What was your thoughts at that time? And uh, how long see, it took see, to decide to do something different?
1: During both in my eight years and then later in Princeton years. Once you do this type of mathematical work, really your best option is to go become a faculty member somewhere. All right. You go you join a university and become a assistant professor and then an associate professor and professor and whatnot, and you publish papers. You guide PhD students like myself. That was the prescribed path Okay, ahead of me. You can almost say it's sort of, in fact, this thing came from the church, right? The original institution that gave rise to the system is the church. And so you are training for priesthood. PhD is a training for priesthood. Then you become a priest, then you become a, hopefully you go to a bishop and a archbishop and, a, and all that. That is the tradition. That's what you call them professors, right? And, and this is, you know, unlike the church, this is the church of truth. The university is the church of truth. That is the idea. And the professor is a bishop in the church. So that's what I trained for and I became qualified. Now the time came for me to actually become a priest. What I am now officially qualified for. That, those six months or one year was a lot of soul searching. I, I actually was applying for such jobs, but my heart is not in it. I, at one level, I didn't want to be doing it, but I have qualified all, you know, essentially the last several years of my life to do this, but I'm not interested in it anymore. I actually got a job in Australian National University, ANU in Canberra. Oh. I'd gone to Australia to interview and they gave me a good job actually, it was a prestigious university and good job and uh, it was going to take about, I got this job in probably August or uh, September sometime of uh, 2000, I mean 1993 okay and they they would apply for a permanent residency in Australia. I was in Princeton still and and then I would go take up the job. That was the process. Okay. So you had to wait about two, three months for the permanent residency to come through. During those two, three months, I completely changed my mind. So the Australian consulate calls me and says, you can now move to Australia, you are ready. You can go take up your job. I said, no, I'm not going. They said, what? I said, no, I'm sorry, I changed my mind. And I sent an apology, serious apology. This is this is like a, literally like you're going to get married and then in the last minute you are you are walking out of the marriage, right? it's, okay. not a, it's a very strange to do. Okay. It's only time I've done it, right? So, and uh, I said, I'm not. I'm very sorry. I cannot take up the job because my heart is not in it. Okay, I I decided to go totally different path. I don't know what I'll be doing in life, but this I know this is what not what I want to be doing. So. Then I decided I'm going to take up an engineering job to do some real-world engineering. Okay. And that is how that I ended in up in Qualcomm. Huh?
0: That time you were still in US?
1: Yeah, I was in Princeton. I yeah. was still in Princeton. And uh, this company Qualcomm, which is of course the global leader. Now at that time, they were a promising, uh, uh, promising not a, not a startup. They had gone beyond it, but still not well-known. They were not known for cellular or any of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it's kind of technically highly skilled company, but not yet a market success. That's how I put them at that time. This was in 93, 94. So I got a job there as an engineer. And uh, my job was supposed to uh, actually do R&D, but this is engineering R&D, meaning hardcore, you have to invent systems, file patterns, all of that for a satellite communication system, okay? And along the way, I was there two years. I also ended up doing some work, uh, which actually, I did not invent anything there, but I actually ended up doing some existing engineering work that, some of which uh, later now in the LTE, in fact, this type of 4G type of systems, now incorporate some of those uh, ideas, which I want to make it clear, I did not invent them, but I worked on such projects there when I was there, so those gave me a taste for real world practical engineering first, that how you build systems, that's one. But that was the time my brother actually also joined me in Qualcomm. He was in India, he was a software engineer and then he came to US and joined me in Qualcomm. He was there exactly one year. And Kumar, Kumar Venbu, he runs GoFrugal Tech and he's one of our co-founders too he and i would talk a lot about india india's technology uh, now how india is sending all these engineers abroad but we don't have much of an industry to speak of ourselves we don't build products and technology all of that we were talking about and uh, after about a year actually he decided to just move back to india okay. he was homesick but he also wanted to move back to india to pursue this uh, This, as as he put it enough talking time to do. That's how he put it, right? So he moved back to Chennai to be at home with parents. And he arrived in India without any plan, no business plan. Now sit at home and try something. And I told him, okay, I'll we'll figure out something together. That is what I was still in Qualcomm, but I was also going to leave. And uh, about three months after he left, I left my job too. I was there exactly about two years or so in uh, Qualcomm. And uh, then I left. And I didn't have a plan also. I didn't have a plan what to do. Right. But Kumar had actually found some contract work himself, and that's how he was keeping himself alive. I had some savings. I was pretty frugal in my habits, so I had some savings. So I decided to hunt around for something to do, actually. That is literally how I was up, and and try to drum up
0: some business. So that is how it started. Share some light on now. First is, how do you see a problem? And how do you tackle it? Yeah,
1: so I applied this type of, uh, if you want to call a grand name, a philosophical framework, but you can call it an approach, how I approach something. Uh, Suppose I want to enter a new field, you know, any field, doesn't matter, we have entered a lot of fields in the last 20 years. I always approach it with a blank state of mind, I know nothing, zero. I actually accept that I know nothing. Zero about it, okay? I'll give you an example. Today I know zero about biotech. So it'd be a good example of what I know zero about. Okay. Actually, yeah. I know even in spite of my electrical engineering degree, I know close to zero about electrical motors, as an example, even mm-hmm. though I wrote a lot of exams on it.
0: Right.
1: So it's again a zero. So you start with that zero, and then I collect a lot of facts by reading maybe sometimes contradictory facts, I reading, researching, talking to people, all of that, I get a sort of a, you get some factual knowledge first. This is what is there in the Wikipedia. You can start with the Wikipedia. Like for example, I'll go to Wikipedia and start with uh, electrical motors. Then it'll describe AC motors and DC motors. Then let's zoom in on DC motors. It'll talk about brushless and this and that. I mean, you can go on and on. So I'll collect those facts, and now I will go look up the companies that are building those kinds of products. What do they do? Like who are the guys who make these DC motors? Who are
0: best in the industry?
1: Right, right. Who's, who's the, who are the top guys in this industry? And very soon, within a few, maybe a week or two or three of that effort, you can roughly get who are the considered the experts or thought leaders in that thing. Okay? In fact, uh, nowadays what I do is I, I go and quickly follow them on Twitter. <laughs> if any feel that I don't know but I follow the best people on Twitter. And you will probably get a, a list of three or four or five or six people like that easily nowadays. That's a, the greatest benefit of the Internet. Okay. That you can actually find who are good at this in within a within a simple few, few days. You can figure this out. And at this point, I'm still uh, from zero. I've graduated to certain knowing some facts about something and maybe I tentatively have opinions probably a lot of un- uninformed opinions but just opinions at this point and I try not to make any too strong opinions about these because it's not a time to make strong opinions it's time to have maybe some facts maybe some loosely held opinions opinions that are subject to change as right. I say and, uh, once you get deeper and deeper, and if you are diligent, you put in the effort and you get more and more, you will start to understand, for example, take three experts that you have in the field. What are their strong convictions about? Because to be an expert, you have something, you believe in something, okay? okay. What do they believe in? And more importantly, what do these people agree upon, these experts? What do they disagree upon?
0: Mm-hmm
1: a very important one, actually. What do they disagree upon is very important. Okay. Because if there is any disagreement among what you would consider top level experts, that's actually a very good sign that there is an open area right there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If your top three experts in, let's say, biotech disagree on something, you might consider that an open question, a good open question.
0: Okay. okay.
1: And, uh, and then what they agree upon, you might say that is settled fact or established fact about that field, hmm. if they all agree upon something.
0: Correct.
1: And so you get an idea now, slowly. And what I try to do is zoom in on these areas of agreement and areas of disagreement. And now tentatively, which side would I pick? If there are these two people disagreeing, what would I pick? I have no knowledge to pick one yet. But try to see which one would you pick. Why would you pick that? Correct. And try not to be very personal about it, right? Oh, I like this guy's look, therefore I'll pick that side. That's bullshit, right? But Maybe you'll pick, uh, you'll say, "I maybe this argument sounds more appealing or that argument sounds more appealing. I don't know why. So, you start to get something. So, the process I describe is you have opinions. Slowly, some of those opinions become strong opinions. Maybe some of them will become convictions. Right. Okay. And when you have some conviction, then you can act. That is when action. Okay. Very nice. So, this is... Uh, from zero to opinions to strong opinions to convictions to action. That is the accessibility.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> uh, beautiful. I think it can be a, itself can be made a framework and maybe okay. written a book and sold uh, successfully. But I think uh, thanks for sharing that. And typically, how much time you give because sometimes you know that, uh, or rather, I'll say, when do you give up? Not, I'll not say give up, when do you stop putting your effort? Like, how much time you give normally?
1: Well, obviously, you know, in any, I have only, I only have enough. Any, any one person can only have enough time, or in the world, to have maybe a couple of areas in which to have convictions. Right. Okay. To really have depth, you know, you have to put in the time. So it's not like I have convictions about eighteen areas. Okay. Maybe I have convictions about two or three areas. To be honest, right? Okay. To reach that level of conviction, you can only do it in a couple of areas, maximum. And I mean, most of us, maybe one area. You'd be lucky to have that. So, but you want to be arriving at those convictions slowly. You don't want to arrive at it too casually, too readily. If you do that, then you haven't thought this through, actually. Okay. So that is the approach. And it would take, I mean, this how much time is a question where a few weeks to a lifetime would be the (laughs) correct range. Because you really, at some level, you're both arriving at some conviction and living through it through your action. So that's a lifetime then. Okay. But to start acting, it might be a few weeks or a few months, but still, you're only still more tentative than completely convinced about something, right? So
0: so my, my next question was related to that, uh, the dimension of time, because in terms of time, like, uh, especially now you since you run a large organization, you will get multiple initiatives. Uh, how do you manage like the do you go by the timeline or do you go by the outcome what is your uh preference
1: yeah. i'll i'll give you my uh theory of project management <laughs> for what
0: one more secret so, yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you
1: on any sub any sufficiently complex project is actually not forecastable in time readily okay and uh, Almost all the software projects fall in the category. If it's not sufficiently complex, it's trivial, and trivial projects are, you know, they're not, there's not a lot of, uh, usually there's not a lot of value in it much. But anything that is complex enough, time becomes very, you know, difficult or impossible to forecast. And the reason is that you come across issues that stump you that you don't know how to solve, actually. Uh, and uh, and then it takes, it, it can be a time sucker. For example, the act of debugging in software is an example of that. You may have a complex enough program, like Zoho Meeting is an example. You come across a bug, and you cannot say, I'll fix this bug tonight. Actually, it yeah. cannot be guaranteed. In fact, it may even take three weeks to reproduce the bug sometimes. no, we may find a bug now, but we may not be able to reproduce that exact bug again easily and even after you reproduce the bug finding the actual cause of the bug may take an indefinite indeterminate amount of time yes these are real problems that every working software engineer knows only pure play project managers cannot appreciate this that these are facts okay so which is why i don't tend to forecast by time i tend to forecast by certain milestones where have you reached right now so, and uh, uh, let me give you an example. Suppose that take take this. I always like to do thought experiments like this. Okay. Suppose take a uh, state of Bihar, India. We are going to assemble. Here is a challenge I'm going to give ourselves. We'll assemble maybe 500 or 1,000 engineers. Start from zero. We have to figure out how to build something like a Boeing
0: 747.
1: All mm-hmm. I will to take. Money is no object. Money is no object. Okay. How long will it take? The truth is, we cannot actually exactly determine the time, but we can say approximately it may take at least five to ten years, maybe fifteen years, maybe twenty years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this that's an example, right? You, I'm, I'm i the pro the, the problem description is very very crisp and clear. State of yeah. Bihar, the order yeah. assembly point seven four seven. And you now you make an assumption that no existing person with the knowledge is available, which is a good assumption. Actually, another assumption I make in the Indian context that we don't have expertise prior expertise. That's a useful assumption because that's what a developing country is. Developing country means no prior expertise in those areas. So how do you build it? In fact, state of Bihar actually somebody could build this if they had the time and the money to do it. But but it would take that you you have to let go of the notion that i'll ship it in one year i'll ship it in three years you have to let go of the notion that's the idea
0: very good i think again that uh it's like tying back to fred Brooks' uh mythical man month that's i think yeah. the,
1: exactly yeah. it's a great book actually right. it's the same same finding i've just stated it in a different way that's all
0: very nice but uh, i think still we are learning uh to become yeah. managing large complex projects okay. Thanks for sharing that. That's very insightful, especially from a software context, because uh, still uh, the industry is learning how to build great and complex uh, programs.
1: Any, any, any complex engineering project is similar to software, the same problems. Okay. Right. That's why I gave some Salesforce 7 or building a bullet train. All of these are. On the other hand, there is a different challenge. I tell you what is time predictable. Given a particular design, given a particular thing, exactly replicate this, like make this widget. Okay. Uh, That is subject to more forecastable time. So in fact, mistake often people make is, uh, this is the way I say it, you are confusing the act of running a train on existing tracks versus laying new tracks through unknown terrain. Laying new tracks through unknown terrain is not the same category of problem as running a train on an existing track. Correct. And yet the whole project management approach is how to make the trains run on time. Right. Well, trains can only run on time, assuming you have the tracks already laid and everything is ready. But if your job description includes laying the new tracks through unknown terrain, uh, I cannot give you a timeline easily.
0: Yes, very good uh, analogy. One, I think one last question before I go to some general topics is, what are three things you value most?
1: <laughs> These are the type of uh,
0: interview questions,
1: as I call them. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the reason think... I call them, the questions yeah. is, uh, you know, you're supposed to come up with something interesting.
0: Okay.
1: I don't know that uh, you could off, off the top of your head, you could find something interesting. I mean, I, I'll tell you what I value most personally,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
1: I generally value Having unstructured solitude to figure things out. Okay, that is if I the only the thing that I value the most is not being the super busy the modern way. Okay, mm-hmm. is a killer of all joy. <laughs> you have to run from meeting to meeting to meeting. You know I, I I'll narrate this story. I was in a major customer visit uh, four or five months ago. Okay, in the U.S. Yeah. I met senior execs. Lot of senior vice presidents and vice presidents, and uh, we were talking about this exact topic of you know schedules, all of that, this similar topic. And they showed me their calendar 40 hours, every hour, every half an hour, every slot is filled. In fact, one of the one of the vice presidents she commented, I am so busy with meetings at work. The only time I get to do any real work is going home, and and then I have time alone, I get my work done. That's what she told me. Then I showed her my calendar. Other than that one meeting was pretty black, completely black, right? She said, How do you manage? I said, you know, we manage. I said we manage. And I said, it's not just me. A lot of my senior managers, a lot of our managers, most of their calendars would look sort of like this. And that is by design. I said that is by design. So that's what I, I the thing I value the most is having those chunks of unstructured time to kind of think about. Problems, all of that. So to me, what is work and what is thinking, and what is not doesn't feel like work. They all merge into each other. Yeah, that's one first thing I value most. And the second is you. I value people with a sort of an authentic conversation as possible. Okay, it doesn't matter whether they are you know this is not rich, poor, smart, all of that. But if you have something where you have an un we are not, you know, we are not doing social status signaling with each other, which is so many of modern interactions are social status signaling. Right. And if we can do a genuine connection with the person, that is something that I value very much. So,
0: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and just then some general thing like uh, your favorite foods or how to watch movies or listen to music? Or...
1: Uh, I go for long walks, okay, maybe okay. an hour long hour and a half. I go for a swim in the well here. In in our uh, farm here, there's a nice well, So I go for a swim once in a while. In fact, on a hot day like that, it's very, it's very tempting to jump on the well, jump in the well here. And uh, occasionally I listen to music. Usually my taste is uh, both the Tamil film songs and Carnatic music. Both uh, typically the South Indian thing, but Tamil film songs, some and uh, and then Carnatic music. Those are the ones that I listen to.
0: Good. Um, thank you so much, uh, Sridhar. It has been a great pleasure talking to you. Okay. Uh, one final message you want to give my audience, so that uh, in, in, especially in these times of uh, uncertainty and turbulence and kind of uh, people being fearful of what will happen next, yeah. and you want to share.
1: One thing I would say is, if these are these, keep in mind that our prayer generations, our ancestors have gone through much, much worse than any of this. And, in fact, most of the people who listen to this, who have an opportunity to listen to this have better lives than most of humanity already. In other words, if you are able to listen to this podcast, you probably have you know at least some kind of a you know better better than much better than average position in life station in life. So think about for example the you know i'm I'm in a village here. most of the workforce here, the agricultural workers have a daily wage workers. And they actually don't know whether they have a job to do tomorrow, right. leave a month from now. They don't know whether they have an income tomorrow. It's that level of uncertainty, they handle it, they are able to live through. It is useful to mentally, in other words, the truest thing about all this is, if I worry about my own problems, I may never find a solution. But if I look at other people and see how many problems they have, then suddenly my problems get minimized in sort of perception, this is a scale perception, then I don't worry about them that much anymore. So that is a useful trick by the way, mental trick, yep. to start worrying about other people's problems than your own, then you actually worry about your own problem less and it doesn't loom large. That's the only thing I can tell you. These are tough times, but just look at how many people have it really bad and sympathize, empathize with them, then your own problem, say enough, goes down. So.
0: Good. Thank you. and. Uh, um... Let's uh, uh, support each other and uh, stay safe. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining this call, Sredhar. Thank you. Background score by Srikatte.